Jay and I were clearing out some stuff from behind the church, the alley, about uh, a week ago. And I knew that one of the things that we were going to be clearing out of there was a rad, rather large piece of concrete that was going to be hard to manage because of its size. And so I brought a maul or a sledgehammer along with me. And uh, when we got to it, gave it a strike, split the rock uh, in half, and each of us took half of the stone, the, the, uh, the concrete, and we threw it then in the truck with relative ease because it was split apart. It's a simple illustration of a simple truth. We talked about it last week. It is easier to carry off things when they are separated. They are not as heavy when you break them apart. We all know it. We all know that's the truth. You could all give a, as easily as I could an illustration of that in your own lives. But guess what? Satan knows it as well. He is well aware of that principle. He strives to separate what God is bringing together. That's what he's doing. He is striving to separate things. He walks around the church. Imagine Satan walking around the church with a sledgehammer, looking for stones to break off, looking for stones that have become perhaps a little bit detached from the building and giving them a whack because they're going to be the first ones to go. They're going to be the easiest ones to separate, the ones that are on the edge, the ones that are a little bit detached from everything else, and they will easily be carried off after they are hit. Paul knows this, and he is seeing signs of it in Philippi. He is watching this church via the report that he's received from Epaphroditus, watching this church take hits, take blows, receive opposition, and he takes direct aim in this letter and in this particular section of the letter at this initial fragmentation, separation, this disintegration of the stones at Philippi, of the church at Philippi. He is calling the citizens of this common kingdom to worthy citizenship. That's what we saw last week, and that idea continues to shape here into chapter 2 as well. He's calling them to worthy citizenship, which involves, as we saw last week, standing side by side and striving for the advance of the gospel. And he continues, that's what he called them to last week that we saw, and he continues in this week with, with what does it take to do that? When the forces are arrayed against you as a church, how do you do that? How do you succeed in standing side by side and striving for the advance of the gospel? It takes a mindset of unity, the mechanism of humility, and a laser-like focus on Jesus Christ. And so today I want to begin, as Paul begins, with this mind set of unity. How important is it to you that we be united together as members of this church? Would you be content 
to be here as a family, for things to go fairly well on a Sunday, but not actually to be in union, in community with other people in the church. How important is it to you to be united to the other people who are sitting around you right now? Now we understand that unity is important and we also understand that unity is not easy. We understand it in a marriage, we understand it in a family, and we appreciate from the very early pages of scripture the importance of oneness, right? The importance of, of a family and a husband and a wife in particular experiencing oneness with one another. We appreciate the words of our Lord Jesus Christ who said what God has joined together, let not man separate. But in addition to bringing a man and a woman together, to bringing families together, God is also bringing the church together. Not just individual families, but bringing families, peoples together. In the church, God is overcoming the innate tendency within us for everyone to do what is right in their own eyes. Okay? I return to the judge's phrase to describe this. That phrase, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, is kind of the height of selfish autonomy. It's hard to express it more cogently, more clearly than that phrase. And in the church, God is overcoming that kingship of self with the kingship of his son and drawing people back together, drawing the families of the earth together. Paul cannot be clearer in this. I want you to have, he says in verse 2, the same mind, the same love. I want you to be in full accord with one another. I want you to have one mind. And the reason that in particular he wants them to have one mind and this mindset amongst one another, this mindset of unity, is no less than because that is the mindset of Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Why do I want you to be of one mind? Because I want you of one mind to have the mind of Jesus. God's plan is this. In case you ever wonder about what is the plan of God, God's plan, according to Ephesians 1.10, is to unite all things in Christ. What's happening in the world? What will happen in the world? What's the plan for the world? God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. This is what it says, Ephesians 1. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. This is the plan, this is the mystery, this is the intention. Here it is, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Union of all things is the plan of God. All things united in Jesus Christ. That mindset is to characterize us now. It is to characterize the church in Philippi. And therefore, we, like the church then, we cannot take discord or differences 
or distance or detachment, slow creep away from the church. We cannot take those things casually, though we are tempted to do so. Paul's foundation for this unity is in verse 1 of the passage that is before us, and it is a firm foundation. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and any participation in the Spirit, if there's any of those. Now, just to be clear, this is a conditional statement that assumes that the answer to that is since. Since there is these things, although it has a little bit more rhetorical power to put it in the if-then, in the conditional way of saying it. But be absolutely sure, Paul is 100% convinced those things exist. He's convinced of it. And let me just connect this for a moment so this sounds a little bit more familiar to us. There are three things that are listed here initially. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, and any participation of the Spirit. Those three sound familiar to you because they are the same three things that Paul emphasizes in a benediction with which I often close our services. So we often say, now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul's thinking exactly the same thing here. He's thinking Trinity. If there's any encouragement from Christ, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ if there's any comfort from love, may the love of God. If there's any participation in the Spirit, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Since those things exist, Paul is highlighting the distinct characteristics and work of the various members of the Trinity. But these distinctions that exist are within the mindset of unity that exists within the Trinity. And Paul's point to them here is that you've been made part of that. The Trinity is characterized by unity, not characterized by kind of a boring sameness. Paul's able to articulate the work of the various members of the Trinity with regard to mankind and our redemption and the way it's expressed towards us. But nevertheless, he's able to say, within the Trinity, there is unity of mind. There's oneness of mind. You, in Christ, have become part of that union. Not in a way, of course, that we have become God, but that we've become united to this Trinity in union. But there's one more, right? There's a fourth thing that's mentioned here. It's almost as if Paul says, if that's too lofty for you, if it's, if it's too high to think about the fact that you should be united to one another because you are united with Christ and thus the triune God who is in union with one another and has given to you encouragement and comfort and fellowship, if that's too high to think of, he says, if there's any affection and sympathy. The members of the Trinity love one another. They love one another. And Paul and the Philippians, they love one another. And so Paul says, in effect, that our affections should be part of overcoming discord. If you can't agree for any other reason, 
if you just can't reconcile the issue, I beg of you, since there is affection, then reconcile this issue and be of one mind. In light of that, and in the face of opposition, the word then encourages the Philippians, let us strive to keep and grow in a mindset of unity. To which Paul can imagine a question. That's all well and good. It's fine. Sounds good. Call to unity. That seems like a good thing. Well, how in the world are we going to do that? We find ourselves fighting. We find ourselves driven apart. We find separation starting to take place within our church. How do you do it? How do you, how do you get this kind of unity of mindset? How do you get it in a marriage? How do you get it in a home? And how do you strive for it in a church? And Paul's answer to that is through the mechanism of humility. Humility is the quality or the virtue which allows unity to flourish. It's not selfish ambition. It's not conceit. It's not rivalry. It's not looking out for yourself, looking out for number one. All of those things, they can get things done they can accomplish things. If you're in rivalry with something else, either as a company or as a neighbor or as a sibling, you can get things done because you want to get them done. You want to be better than the person who's around you. If conceit is your motivation, if you're looking for glory, if you're looking to feel better about yourself by getting something done, you can accomplish something with ambition or with conceit as the bedrock for why you're doing it. What you can't accomplish is unity. You can get something done, but you cannot get unity done through those things. They inherently are fighting against others. They're pushing others aside in order for you to get whatever your objective may be. Humility promotes unity. Because when we are humble, then we can do what Paul says. We can put others ahead of ourselves. We can think of others as more significant of ourselves. We can take needs and put them ahead of our own and say that this need that exists here for my brother, for my sister, for my mother, for my father, for my wife, for my husband, for my grandparents, I put it before mine. Humility allows us to do that. Now let me just be clear here. Paul offers a, a, a little bit of a clarification, and I think it's, a, it's important for us to spend just a moment here, if you will, a little bit of a parenthesis on this. Paul doesn't deny that we have our own interests and that we must, in fact, attend to those interests. These are responsibilities that have been given to us by God. He says, do not look only to your own interests. In other letters of his, he is clear that you, you, you can't shirk what God has given you to do in the name of doing something else. Doing the responsibilities that God has entrusted to you is, in fact, a way of being humble. It's a way of being humble before God, recognizing that you are a steward who's been given responsibilities and you need to take care of those. There is a humility in that as well. If we want to use the language of Galatians, 
which is perhaps as helpful as other places, each of us, Paul says, must bear his own load, right? And indeed, that's true. We have a responsibility to bear our own load. And I should not seek help from you to bear my load, and you should not seek help from me to bear your load, the responsibility that God has entrusted to you. But Paul's point is, life doesn't stop there. Our interests have become linked. The more we have the same mindset, the more our common interests, or the more our interests become common interests, so that in Galatians, the shift that is made there, we are called to bear one another's burdens. I'm not called to bear your load, but I am called to bear your burdens. When that gets too much for you, then I'm called to step into that place and bear with you, end parentheses. We have to appreciate what we're being called to do here. We should not underestimate the heights to which we are being called when Paul says we need to walk in humility. Irony intended. Irony intended. The heights of humility. Selfishness comes naturally to us. I, I mean, I'm not going to do it. Because you don't need me to give you any examples of that. You don't need me to tell you what that's like in your life. You know it. Selfishness comes naturally to us. Rivalry comes naturally to us. Whether it's rivalry in sports or business or between brothers and sisters or brothers and brothers, it comes naturally. Putting your interests ahead of mine, there's nothing natural about that. There's nothing that comes easy about that. Maybe if I can get you to do something because it helps me to get ahead, maybe there's something there. But to truly put your interest ahead of mine does not come easy. And it seems that Paul is not unaware of the impossibility, of the radicalness of calling proud Roman citizens, many of whom were former soldiers, could lop our head off with a quick blow if they wanted to. To humility. What could possibly serve as a grounds for such a call to Roman citizens? The mindset of unity is one thing. You know, I, I prefer my own opinions to others' opinions, but I get it. I get it. Talking about unity is a good thing. People talk about unity. I get it. I'm not too upset about a discussion of unity. But unity through the mechanism of humility, that is something else. That is something else. What was the mechanism of unity for Rome? Conquest. The sword. The mechanism of unity is, I will defeat you. I will take your land. Now, I may give you, as they did with Philippi, citizenship because you came alongside of us. That's how we will be unified. So what example do you choose? What example do you choose? After all, many have promoted self-interest as the best way to have a unified and productive society. Self-interest is the best way to do that. Some are, are less uh, delicate 
and self-interest and simply call it greed. Greed is the best thing to do. It's the best way to work. It's the best way to set up a system, set it up on the basis of self-interest. So what example do you choose if you want to exhort people to humility, the kind of humility that brings people together? And Paul's answer is easy. What example am I going to choose? I'm going to choose the example of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, what Paul says is if you're going to live this way, you sure better have a laser focus on Jesus. You sure have to keep your eyes fixed on him. This extraordinary section that we're about to turn to here, verses 5 through 11, of reflection on Christ, of considering his state of humiliation and exaltation, as they were called in the Westminster Standards when we looked at that earlier. This theology of the highest in order is in service of each of us developing an attitude, a mindset of lowliness and humility. We're going to soar the heights of theology right now with one purpose, to bring us low, to keep us humble. Roman citizens understand the logic of what Paul is doing right here. They knew what it was like to have this idea, and this idea floats across the airwaves right now, especially in light of John McCain's death. You hear it out there. They, the Romans knew what it was like to have this concept of serving something greater than yourself. They got that. They understood that. They understood that they were ultimately looking at the city of, the idea of Rome. There is a light out there that is Rome, and I understand living for that idea. They had individual rights and responsibilities. We looked at that a little bit last week with the citizenship. But they were subject, those, those individual things were subject to the greater glory of Rome. The idea, the city, the emperor were greater, at least in concept, than the individual parts thereof. Paul capitalizes on that mindset. Is there a cause? Is there a cause? Is there an idea? Is there a vision so glorious that I will subjugate my self-interest for that? Is there something so high that I say, you know what, that's more important than my life. That's more important than me going first, and there is. And it is the glorious heavenly kingdom that is so far greater than the fading glory of Rome. It is a glorious heavenly kingdom with a king with a name greater than any of the Caesars. A king who is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who unites all things under his name. Everything in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, living or dead in heaven or on earth, he unites all things to himself in one 
glorious common confession. It is his lordship, and his lordship has been gained through humility. How did the incarnate Son of God receive this name and this title? And the answer is, he received it through humility. That was the means of his conquering. We serve a humble, almighty king. We serve one who says, come to me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. That is who he is. Paul takes us through the ages then in this section to show us Jesus. For eternity past, he was God. He was in the form of God. He was like God. He was the second member of the Trinity, but not selfishly. He didn't grasp at being God. He didn't feel the need like a miser to hold on to Godness, to compete with God the Father or God the Spirit. He didn't have to cling to those particular things. That wasn't the nature of his eternally being God. But instead, he emptied himself. Now, theses have been written on what does it mean that he emptied himself. But to be clear, it is simply a metaphor. It is not an attempt to say he emptied himself of, fill it in. It's a simply an attempt to compare two things, grasping and giving. To empty himself is to give, to overflow, to pour out. He doesn't feel the need to grasp and hold on to something, to cling to all of those things, because it is the nature of his humility to be giving, to be pouring out of himself, to empty himself, to overflow into the world that he has created. He took the lowest position by donning upon himself creatureliness, and as a man, he humbled himself through the obedience of death, wherein he took on our humiliation on the cross. If it seems strange to you, if it seems strange to you that I should say to you, look to his interests ahead of yours, his, instead of yours, if that seems strange, consider the man on the cross. Consider the Lord of glory, the eternal Son of God on the cross, the one who emptied himself, who came into the world to give of himself. Paul says, consider that man, if it seems strange to you, that you should give of yourself, that you should take a low position. Really, really, in light of the eternal Son of God on the cross, it seems to you odd or unusual that you should be called to take first the interests of another. Consider that he was the eternal Son of God. Consider that he looked not only for his own interest, but also for your interest, and that is the only reason that we are alive. It is the only reason that we are saved, is because he was willing to do so. That is humility. And all of the calls for submission or for subjection 
that exist in Scripture are rooted in that humility, that same humility of Christ. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wives. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. Young men, be submissive and subject to the older men. Young women, be submissive and subject to the older women. All of you be submissive, subject to one another. Children, honor and obey your parents. Parents, honor and obey and respect your parents. Be submissive, say the scriptures, to rulers and authorities. Go the extra mile, obey your leaders, honor everyone, and yes, Philippians, yes, honor the emperor. Now those last couple are quotes from 1 Peter. Honor the emperor. We rankle. Maybe the word humility or being humble, maybe that's okay. Maybe that doesn't bother us. We kind of get it. It's said enough. But if I change that, or if Scripture gets very specific with that and says, be submissive, be subject, put yourself under, that rankles us. That word gets under our skin. It makes us nervous. But it's completely attached to the humility to which we have been called. Peter says it this way. Finally, all of you have, it's going to sound very familiar, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That's what you should have. All of this flows from the humility of Jesus. But of course, the remarkable thing here is that that is not the end of the story. The end of the story is that the humble one becomes the exalted one. And let's be very clear about this. It's not as if Jesus was humble for his time on earth, and then when he gets to heaven, he's no longer humble. Like, okay, I'm checking that humility, that, that humbleness aside, because now I am the exalted king after all. He is exalted because of his humility, and in his humility, he is a humili not a humiliated, a humility-filled reigning Lord and King. He is a crowned, humble King, and a proud, in the best sense of the word, and humble Father exalts his humble, incarnate son. The father who said, you know what? <laughs> I don't share my name. I don't share my glory with others. The father says, I'm giving you the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. I am exalting you, the son, to lordship over all, the incarnate son. I remember our discussion in John. He's always been the eternal son of God. He's not always been the incarnate, the God-man. And now the God-man is exalted to that position. And I don't mean this to be too casual, but I think what I'm about to say captures the idea to the glory of God the Father that comes at the end of this. To the glory of God the Father. It is almost as if you could imagine Christ saying, I received the Lordship all to the glory of my Father. 
and the father saying, son, I'm trying to exalt you here. I'm, I'm trying to lift up your name. I'm trying to say that you are glory of glory, that you are the most of the most, the greatest of the greatest. And Jesus says to the father, I know I'm trying to do the same thing. I'm trying to give it back to you. That's the nature of the Trinity. The nature of the Trinity is that they try and outdo one another in giving glory to one another. Have this mind among yourselves that was also yours in Christ Jesus. And what happens in that scene, then, imagine this. Imagine now. This is the last day, right? Imagine this scene. And the Philippians and we find ourselves next to each other. Find ourselves. There they are right there. Epaphroditus, Syntyche, all these other people, Lydia in the church. We find ourselves next to each other in perfect unity, in the humbled position. We find ourselves next to one another on our knees, agreeing together, confessing together. I've talked about this in previous sermons. This is the picture of all things united in Christ. To confess is to say the same thing. All creation comes together in one confession to say the same thing. Jesus Christ is Lord. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Satan wants to split us apart. He will look for a weak spot. He will look for a weak spot in this church. He will look for a weak spot in your life. He looks for stones that are loose, that are on the edge, that are struggling, and he will hit them again. His goal is to break them apart. Imagine, if you will, we've all seen this on television. He walks around with his minions like a pride of lions, like a pack of wolves, and they're looking for the weak members of the herd. They're looking for those who are straying off just a little bit because they can't get to the herd. But if you can separate somebody from that, if you can get them on the edge, if you can get them regularly thinking, yeah, church, I'm not sure if I'm going to go to church, not sure if I'm going to participate in that, a little bit's okay. If you can get them thinking that, you separate them. And then you attack. And those you can devour. Be aware of his strategy. He will promise you something better, something fuller, something freer, something more exalted. He's been doing that since the beginning. He's been doing it to our first parents. He's been doing it to our Lord and Savior when he tempted him. And it is a lie. It feels like the truth, and it has always been a lie. The truth is, we should follow Jesus together. He has brought us together. We have covenanted to be together. We should follow him together in humility, for unity, and unto glory. Lord God, this calling is beyond us. 
selfish we are, selfishly we think, within our homes and within our families. Forgive us, and today, renew us. And today, help us to put others in front of ourselves, to walk in humility, to pursue unity, and to keep our eyes focused upon you and your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.